Welcome to the OME Talks podcast. I'm your host, David Petro, and this is the second of three bonus episodes featuring some of our speakers from the upcoming OME 2022 virtual conference. This conference marks the beginning of OME's 50th year, and on the last episode, we heard from the featured and keynote speakers from the first two days of the conference. Um, This episode, we're going to hear from the featured and keynote speakers from the second two days of the conference. And to start off, we're going to hear from Howie Hua, where he will be talking about honoring student thinking. Okay, so I'm speaking with Howie Wa. Howie, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing, David? Great. Uh, Now, you're one of our featured speakers at OME 2022. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a math instructor at Fresno State, where I teach math to future elementary school teachers. Short and sweet. Now, as I said, you're a uh, one of our featured speakers. Your featured session is called Honoring Student Thinking. I wonder if you could give us maybe a little bit of an elevator pitch about why we might want to come to your session this year. So my featured talk, like you said, is uh, Honoring Student Thinking. And when I decided to become a math teacher, I thought that to be a good math teacher, I just had to be a good math explainer. But I realized throughout teaching throughout the years that being a good math teacher is much more than that. It's all about creating an environment where um, students are problem solving. And it made me realize that math is a very creative subject and we really limit what math is if we just say this is how to do it rather than posing a problem and honoring the student thinking because Every single day that I've taught for the past six or seven years, students come up with ideas that I never thought of. So it's very important to honor student thinking. And in my featured session, I will be talking more about how to honor student thinking. I think maybe it's even more pragmatic than than ever to uh, start to think about teaching in this way, because... And I used to be a teacher who proud prided myself on being a very good explainer. And, you know, the internet is now full of math explainers. Yeah. You know, for a motivated student, you don't need a face-to-face teacher anymore because you've got, a, you know, uh, literally thousands of videos of people explaining how to do math. And so I think I think we really have to look beyond just explaining math to engage our students into something that is going to make the math meaningful for them, for sure. Yeah, and I think that that is what separates math class to just Googling a math topic, you know? Like, it really gives them time to problem solve because rather than just look up the formula or look up how to do it online. Now, I wonder if you can give us a a very quick example of something that might fit this uh, criteria. Yeah. So my second year of teaching, I was teaching arithmetic arithmetic sequences. And I posed this problem on the board, 3, 7, 11, 15, 19, and so forth. And I gave students a couple minutes to find the 100th term of this sequence. And... In my head, I was thinking students are going to say, well, they're jumping by four every time. Starting at three, we need to jump four 99 times. Um, And I was thinking that they would do that. And then I would say, like, that's great because we can uh, create the arithmetic sequence formula um, using that method. And then that method did come up. And then a student raised his hand and he said, "I, I got the same final answer, but I did it a different way. So I brought him up to the board 
And he wrote 4, 8, 12, 16, and 20 directly underneath the 3, 7, 11, 15, and 19. And he said, well, I noticed that all of these were one less than a multiple of 4. So 100 times 4 is 400. Take away 1 is 399. And my mind just exploded when I saw that just because... 4n take away 1 is the arithmetic sequence formula for that specific arithmetic sequence equation for that sequence. And I never saw it as the multiples of 4 minus 1. So so yeah, so um, just honoring student thinking rather than say like, this is how to think about it, it showed a new way of approaching arithmetic sequences. And I think that takes a little bit of courage on the teacher's part to to not just think that they have everything that they need to give the students. So, you know, I, I think that's a, a very valid lesson for all teachers to have is that, you know, you may not necessarily always be the complete answer key. Yeah. Now, I, I would be, I, I think I would be remiss in saying, since we're talking about explainers, uh, I, I would be remiss in, in not mentioning your TikTok prevalent, uh, presence. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about how you, you sort of came about doing, doing that? Yeah, so I started my TikTok account, I think, November 2020. And I think the majority of the reason was because just to keep in touch with my past students, I always feel bad when chapters end. It's like I never get to like teach these students again. So I am fortunate to have an, a newsletter that I would send to past students. I have a listserv with hundreds of my past students on them. I don't know why they would still want to listen to me after our class is over, but I'm like, hey, if you still want to learn from me, I'll make some math explainer videos on TikTok. If you want to follow me, go for it, but obviously not required. Um, so it just sprouted like that. I'm like, I just want to make a TikTok account just to just for my past students. And then it kind of grew after that. So I'm very honored that people want to hear me explain math. And and I, I don't I don't really even classify them as traditional explainers because I think you go much deeper into the mathematics than just the surface of solving a problem. So I really appreciate that that uh, approach that you've taken. Now you you're also going to be doing a breakout session about math tricks. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's titled "Tell Me Why," and kind of a reference to the Backstreet Boys song. But it's just understanding the why behind the tricks. So we're going to spend a session on just conceptual understanding and understanding like why we flip the second and multiply or uh, why does a negative times a negative equal a positive, things like that. Or why do we move decimal points when we multiply and divide decimals? So we're just going to spend a session on that. So thanks for talking to us today, uh, and we are excited to have you speaking at uh, OME 2022. Yeah, I'm really excited. Thank you so much, David. That was Howie Wah, giving us a taste of his featured and breakout sessions. His featured session will be on Monday, May 9th at 4 p.m., and his breakout at 6 p.m. on the same day. Up next is David Porras, who will be going to talk to us about creativity and storytelling in math. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Great. David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a middle school math teacher outside of Boston, Massachusetts in a town called Weston. I've been teaching middle school math there for oh, above 20 years now, 22 or 23. And I'm also the head of content for uh, Mathagon. 
which is a mathematical playground full of uh, virtual manipulatives, courses, activities, and more. All right. And you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2022 coming up. Very honored to be so. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Your session, your featured session is called Creativity and Storytelling in Mathematics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. In that talk, I'm going to explore how storytelling and real life applications can make math education more accessible, more engaging for students and memorable. I'll explore how creativity and problem solving can make the learning experience more interactive for students and show them, uh, you know, just the great power and surprising beauty of mathematics that can come through through stories and real life applications. And uh, do you have an example of what that, that might uh, sound like? Yeah, I would love to share a quick example of one that I might dive into a little more detail in, in the featured session. As I said, I teach middle school, so this is a story and an activity I've used in middle school, I think it could certainly be used in high school or a version of it with younger students. And it involves a French writer from the 1600s named Chevalier de Mer. And he enjoyed playing games with dice. And there was one game that he liked playing that involved rolling four dice and trying to roll at least one six. And so in class, I have a picture of him up on the board and I tell more about his background. And he's got awesome hair in the picture that I share so the, the students enjoy kind of learning about him and, and you know, like what he was involved in in, uh, in France in the 1600s. And then I invite the class to choose a side that the class will play against me. And they could either be going for trying to get at least one six in four rolls of a dice or not. And we debated a little bit back and forth, but I don't want to dive into the probability yet. And we play, I have the class vote if they want to be getting a six or not. I keep track of the data on the board. And then I have the students uh, go off and play the game in pairs. And so they could rock, paper, scissor to see which side they want to be on. They gather data and we might get a hundred trials or so of that. And again, we'll have a conversation about which, which side seems more likely based on the data or based on their intuition. And then in the last year, I've been doing this probably for six or seven years now in the classroom, but this past year, I incorporated the virtual tools on Polypad, on Mathagon, and I, I shared a canvas with students that had 20 sets of four dice. And on Polypad, it's easy to roll all the dice at once, so they could roll all 20 and count how many of the 20 had at least one six. And we did that in class. I think I did them at, had them do it as a homework assignment. And it was really easy for the students to get four or 500 trials each. And they gathered their data. In, and in a class of 20, uh, I think I had a class of 25 students last year, we very quickly could generate 10,000 trials of this event. And then when I put all my classes together, we got close to 50,000 trials of, of taking four dice and rolling them and counting the number of sixes. And when we put all that data together, it, it turned out that our experimental probability was 52.15%. And so it seems like it's a little more than likely that you would get at least one six. And then I bring it back to the story, right? And so I say that when Chevalier de Mer was playing this game, he won more often than he lost. And he kept winning money. And he thought that he should win two thirds of the time which causes a moment of pause in the class because when we did 50,000 trials of the data, it was about 52%, uh, and this is two-thirds. And so that is, is a launch into exploring the actual probability, the theoretical probability 
of rolling four dice and getting at least one six. And it turns out it's about 50, it's, it's 51.77% is the theoretical probability. And it's a pretty advanced calculation for kids in middle school. And so our theoretical probability was really close, 52.15 compared to 51.77. And then I'll, 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 I'll end it here. But the next part of the story is he thought that his probability of two thirds was correct because he won more often than not. And over a lot of games, when you're, when you're winning money, you're not so focused on, am I winning two thirds of the time or 52% of the time? You're just winning money. So he invented another game with 24 rolls of a pair of dice. And the goal there is to get at least one pair of sixes. So again, in the first game, it was four dice getting at least one six. In this game, it was trying to get at least one pair of sixes and 24 rolls of a dice. And something kind of funky happened to him here. I'll kind of leave it as a cliffhanger, but it, it really motivated my students to try to figure out why was the second game different and what's the theoretical probability of the second game, which is a really involved, complicated probability calculation. Um, so that's a quick example of a story that I share that helps kind of show the history of math just as a, as a final note on the story. He was confused in, in his second game, so he got in touch with, with some friends of his by the name of, uh, of Pascal and Fermat, and their correspondence on this game helped build some of the underlying work of the theory of probability. Sure, sure. He just DM'd his friend Pascal. and Exactly. He's like, hey, man, I'm confused. Help me out. So... I'm curious now if you are like as you're as you're moving along life, are you collecting these stories? Are you looking specifically for stories for topics or are you sort of collecting them and saying, oh, wait, I think I'll be able to use that someday when I do this? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, this story, to be honest, I, I, I don't recall when I first came across it. It might have been in my probability course in college years ago, to be honest. It, uh, I know there's a there's an article on cut the knot dot org maybe i'm not sure what it's dot but uh, it's it it's a great you know site for uh, exploring mathematics so i might have i might have seen it there a number of years ago but i knew that when i first tried it in the classroom that it got students hooked and engaged in in finding probability you know and now uh, so many great examples of of stories on twitter our courses on on mathagon have stories so i think it's it's you, you, you just try to find them where you can, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, you're also doing a breakout session for us. And not surprising, yes. uh, given your work with Mathagon, it's uh, using virtual manipulatives to engage students in mathematical exploration and discovery. You've talked almost a little bit about that yeah. in that story. Uh, but I wonder if you could just uh, enlighten us a little bit what this session is going to be about. Sure, I'd be happy to. So on, on Mathagon, our space of virtual tools is called Polypad. And um, there's still, let me, let me also put out there, there's so many lessons where I still use the physical manipulatives in class. And there are times that's the best tool, just like there are times to do things on technology is best. So I still think it comes down to what's best for students in that lesson. And as I've explored the virtual manipulatives, I found there, there are four categories of where I found great benefit in the virtual ones. I think there's a, the first category is allowing students to discover ideas for themselves with the virtual tools where they have the opportunity to discover something on their own. And one example is just with the Pythagorean theorem where there's a lot of great like videos out there and animations where students can watch the squares on the legs of the triangle fitting in perfectly 
into the square on on the hypotenuse. I've tried it with graph paper before where they cut it out or the cheese it thing. It just gets really messy. And I found on Polypad, it's just so easy to build the squares and use the cut tool to fill in the square on the hypotenuse. And that that virtual tool, the, the ease of use, allows them to come to that conclusion on their own by actually building it and creating it themselves as opposed to watching what could be a really nice animation that a, a, a computer programmer made that's different than when you're actually doing it on your own. All right. So we are looking forward to having you speak at OME 2022 in May. Uh, and we're thank you for uh, talking with us today. So sure. uh, we will see you in May. And uh, thanks again. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. David will be doing his featured session on Monday, May 9th at 8 p.m. and his breakout session on Thursday, May 5th at 4 p.m. Next is Marion Small, who is a speaking on the social and emotional aspects of math teaching. So I'm with Marion Small. Marion, how are you doing? I am great. How are you? Marion, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I am an Ontario resident. I live in Ottawa. I spent most of my career at the University of New Brunswick as a professor, and I've spent a lot of years working with teachers, both speaking and creating resources that teachers across the country and internationally use. Okay, and you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2022. Uh, your featured talk is called Social Emotional Aspects of Math Teaching, K-12. to I wonder if you could give us a little idea of what that's about. Sure. This particular focus is an unusual one for me. Usually when I speak, I talk about differentiating instruction in math or effective questioning or the importance of being intentional. And this time I decided to kind of change it up a little bit and focus on the social emotional aspects of math teaching. So we all know that the 2020 curriculum in Ontario was quite explicit about the need for kids to develop social emotional learning skills as they learn in the math classroom. I'm going to be talking though about how those same behaviors like recognizing stress and coping with challenges or persevering or developing a sense of identity or thinking critically and creatively apply to us as math teachers as well, that we want to develop those very same behaviors for ourselves as teachers as we want our students to develop as learners. I think it's particularly interesting um, in light of how we have all managed to cope with stress and persevered teaching virtually. So many teachers figured out how to cope with that challenge and how we might apply some of what we've learned that we are capable of to reconsider our behaviors as math teachers, even when we're live in the classroom with students. I will be addressing teachers from K to 12. And so I do think the same ideas will be pertinent at all of those levels. So you mentioned that uh, you, you're normally used to talking about things like open questions and things like that. I'm wondering if you approach the way you talk about this subject differently from those ones that you're most known for. 
I'm not even sure yet exactly how I'm going to approach it. I have some ideas, but I haven't worked it all out yet. What I think is is the same about what I'll be doing is that I have in my mind a list of important considerations that we have to reflect on as teachers. And really, I'm doing the same thing when I talk about open questions or intentionality or better questioning. Um, so there is definitely a structure in my head. These are my goals. What do I do to achieve those goals? What's important? What's less important? So I think a lot of the work I do with teachers, no matter what it is, is really about how do we make decisions about what really matters the most and focus ourselves to ensure that we improve in those areas. I think that idea of creating or, or setting those goals or, or at least formally thinking about them is that that great first step in making progress in any of these areas. Now, you are also going to be doing a breakout session on cultivating mathematical reasoning. I think that's more in your usual wheelhouse. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. My usual fair, yeah. Sure, I'd love to. It's very interesting to me when we think about the mathematical processes that we've chosen to use in Ontario. And um, for a lot of teachers and a lot of talk from from leaders, there's always the focus in particular on the importance of problem solving as almost the preeminent process. Certainly not the only one, but, but preeminent. I guess for me, it's not that it doesn't it isn't important to me, but for me, mathematics is almost defined by reasoning. That what attracts me to mathematics, what what attracts me to the kinds of responses I get from students is their reasoning. And I think it's central. And I want teachers to see how we how we cultivate good reasoning. How do we help kids see what good reasoning looks like versus not as good reasoning? How do we help them do what is is one of the standards of mathematical practice in the U.S., which is uh, critique other students' reasoning in obviously a respectful way? But how do you listen to different arguments and say, well, this one is more convincing than this one? So I will be focusing on reasoning truly my favorite process. And um, the session will will focus on grades three to eight. The ideas will pertain to other levels too, but I think the content will be three to eight. I think that 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 name or that the word cultivating is is really important here. Uh, you know, very much like a farmer still has to cultivate his land in order to get a proper proper growth. We can't just expect students to just have that that reasoning if we don't uh, find a way to develop it. Absolutely, and we're back to kind of what I said earlier that we ourselves need to know that what good reasoning sounds like, and how do we make sure that if we believe this is as important as I do, we ensure that kids get to experience um, those opportunities to make it happen for them. Well, excellent. Uh, So uh, we look forward to hearing from you at OME 2022 in May. And uh, thanks for uh, coming out to talk to us today. Thank you. That was Marion Small, an OME staple who will be doing her feature talk on Tuesday, May 10th at 4 p.m. and her breakout session on Thursday, May 5th at 6 p.m. Our last featured speaker will be Sunil Singh, who's also talking about our theme of storytelling in math. Sunil, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Uh, Yourself, David? Great. I wonder, uh, Sunil, if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. 
Sure. So I was a math, physics, and uh, occasionally English teacher for 19 years. Uh, I taught at a community college, Seneca College, up here in Toronto. I taught uh, actually one year overseas in Switzerland, International Baccalaureate School. And then I left teaching semi-abruptly in 2013. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew in my gut I just I just didn't want to be in the classroom anymore. And it's going to come full circle to the presentation at OME. And again, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I didn't know I was going to write you know three books, and I've written three books now. And, and I now uh, work uh, mostly with Amplify, which is based out of Brooklyn, and I help uh, curate and bake in uh, storytelling into their K-12 platform. So that is, it's really very topical for us because at OME 2022, you are one of our featured speakers and one of our themes is storytelling and you are going to be talking about storytelling in math. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a sneak peek as to what you're going to be talking about. My elevator pitch for storytelling is really that it's better content and pedagogy. That if we teach through narrative and compelling storytelling and the story of mathematicians and the story of us and the story of our students and their journeys, we are going to eventually arrive at the richest and most robust content and pedagogy. So when you think of storytelling in mathematics, I'm wondering if you could give us maybe a brief idea of what a story in mathematics might be. Sure. So a story is really, you know, it does a, it does, the main thing it does, it humanizes the mathematician and the mathematics. So, you know, for example, if you were to talk about, let's say, Sophie Germain and her contributions to number theory, and those are all wonderful things, you know, she also lived in a certain time period, you know, which was through the French Revolution. And when the French Revolution happened, it was very dangerous. And because it was dangerous, she had to go out, uh, stay off the streets and spend time inside. That's where she found her father's library. And that's where she came across the supposed death of Archimedes. And all these chain reactions happen. And, you know, mathematicians are human and their interests and their struggles and everything, um, everything which happens through is around their time period and stories add color. Um, and I think that's really it's probably the most important thing. They don't take away from the mathematics. They add color to the mathematics and really uh, humanizes it and which and stories tr transfer energy and so that's why you know the, when you learn through stories you remember things more and of course we want kids to you know remember things more and then you know if we talk about the fluencies um you know factual procedural and conceptual historical fluency braids all three together it's funny that you mentioned that you know it's it, it, I guess it reminds me of, of the title of that Harold Jacobs book, uh, Mathematics, a Human Endeavor. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, and, and I think that the more that we can bring that, that human nature to mathematics, the more, and as you say, the more, it, it, it is probably more important than curriculum. I mean, curriculum is just stuff, right? And it's this idea of mathematical thinking. If we could spark that kind of thinking, I think we're, we're, we're far better off. Well, I think you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, the human part is, is so important. And so, you know, what makes us human is that, you know, we we are imperfect and that we have, we struggle and there's confusion. And all these things have been part of the history of mathematics. I mean, if we're to take a long lens on it for, you know, a couple thousand years and we're to observe everyone who's dabbled in mathematics, the overarching uh, story, it's been about slow failure. Yes, exactly. And 
It is. And that's, and we do the quite the exact opposite, you know, square peg meet round hole. And I think that's what also makes it uh, more inclusive, the storytelling that, you know, if I tell a story of, let's say, again, like Sophie Germain, a student might ask a question, which I don't know the answer to. In fact, I'm hoping I don't know the answer to as to, you know, why did she do that or what happened here? I don't know. How about you go find that out and bring back that to the classroom so the next day? And I think that that is a, a great way uh, as a teacher. And um, if we can remind students that we are not the answer key, we don't always have the answers, but we are good resources in, in helping to find those answers that that will help bring those students to become answer finders on their own. That's, that's, that's exactly that was at the third bullet point from Dan Finkel's TED Talk. You're not the answer key. That's right. That's right. I'm not the answer key. Neither are you. Nope. Well, Sunil, uh, thank you for, for talking to us, giving us a brief idea of what you're going to be talking about as a featured speaker at OME 2022. And we will see you in May. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, David. That was Sunil Singh, who will be our last featured speaker of the conference at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, May 10th. And that does it for our featured speakers. So that leaves our second keynote speaker, Matt Parker, talking about math mistakes. Okay, so I'm talking with Matt Parker. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, David. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, no problem. So Matt, you are uh, one of our, you're actually the closing keynote speaker for our OME 2022 conference here in May. Uh, Matt, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. So I used to work as a high school math teacher, although I would say math teacher because I actually taught in Australia which is maths. And I taught in the UK for a couple of years, also maths, but I attempt to be bilingual. If I'm in North America, I will switch to saying math, even virtually. I will give that a go. We appreciate that. My, yeah, thank you. Uh, my career, however, has taken a few turns since then. So it's been about a decade since I was last in the classroom. And my work now has kind of broadened to all forms of math communication. I'm probably more in math PR now than in strict math education. So I write books, I make videos, do articles, bits of TV and media, anything I can do to try and get more people more excited about mathematics. Now, do you still consider yourself a stand-up mathematician? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's the Venn diagram approach to describing my career. It's the best description I've found so far. Excellent. Excellent. So you are going to be our keynote, as I mentioned, our closing keynote, and uh, you're going to be talking about math mistakes. So how is that uh, going to play out for us? Yeah, because I wanted, of all the different types of communication I do, I recently wrote a book called Humble Pie. And writing books is very interesting in terms of a long form, like very slow way of communicating, uh, uh, you know, mathematical concepts over hundreds of pages. And I also when I wanted to put that book together, I both on one hand had to convince my publishers who just want to publish popular science books. They, they don't, you know, they do care about the content, but their end goal is just, will people buy and read this? And so I had to convince them I could write a math book that generic humans would want to purchase and read. And I was like, you know what? I think if I styled it around when math goes wrong, like uh, disasters, accidents, you know, miscalculations, everyone enjoys a story about something going wrong for someone else. And I knew I could use these stories of engineering failures, aviation mistakes, even things like into um, medicine and finance and all sorts of different areas as an excuse to talk about the math behind them. 
And so often, because math does work fine most of the time, people don't notice how much of our modern lives is built on mathematics. And so, and, and the publishers went with it and the book did very well. And so it's like, ah, this is a winning way to get people into mathematics. And on the flip side, I'm also, I'm always thinking, I don't tell the publishers this, when I'm writing a book, I think, how would I use this if I was still working as like a classroom teacher? And so my kind of unofficial, you know, policy for the book was to answer the question of why do we need to know this? which is the, the classic question that every math teacher has to put up with from day zero. And so I was like, well, this would be a collection of stories where one way to answer that question is because this person in this scenario didn't learn that, and here's all the horrible things and all the consequences that went wrong for not knowing the algebra, stats, data, trigonometry, whatever it is you're trying to teach at the time. So I wonder, do you, do you have a sense of, of how many of the, quote, normal people have read your book? Well, you know what? The publishing industry is surprisingly antiquated. And so you get very slow, very undetailed, low-resolution stats. But it was the first maths book in the UK to be number one on the bestseller list. So we have the equivalent of the New York Times. It's the Sunday Times bestseller list. And it's the first book that hit the top of that. And so my publishers were very pleased. And hopefully it's opened the door for more, like now they're more open to math books. Now they realize that someone writing about mathematics can be a very, you know, can be a good seller. So I was very pleased that it seems to have hit that sweet spot of general intrigue, but it's a good conduit for mathematics. And so my goal for the keynote is to pull out some of my favorite stories, partly because I just think in terms of sheer content, they're interesting where things have gone wrong and, you know, the, the math behind it is kind of concrete examples, but also partly because it's just that concept of here's a whole way to frame math in a very human, very narrative, very engaging fashion. And anything we can do to hook people with an interest of math for whatever reason makes it a little bit easier to then, you know, teach, communicate and, you know, uh, convince people this is worthwhile mathematical knowledge. So that fits in perfectly with our theme of storytelling and math. Uh, I'm wondering if you can give us a, like a brief, the briefest glimpse of a story that may come out in the keynote. Oh, absolutely. So one that I really, really like, partly because of its simplicity, was an advertising campaign that Pepsi ran in the 1990s, where you could collect Pepsi points. And if you had enough of them, you could win, like, you could trade them in for a t-shirt or sunglasses or, or, you know, standard Pepsi merch. And in the commercial, they jokingly said, if you collect 7 million Pepsi points, they'll give you a Harrier jump jet. And the joke is, like, classic extrapolation to the absurd. Haha, very funny, very zany. You know, you can get a t-shirt or you can get a military aircraft. However, what they didn't do was think through the number 7 million that they used. They just thought, what's a big number? Oh, 7 million, that feels big. But the jet that they used for the joke at the time cost the US military $20 million per jet. And you could buy Pepsi points for 10 cents each, as long as you got enough from products. And so they accidentally offered to give away a $20 million jet for $700,000. And someone did it. Someone got the money together, put in the claim. There was a big court case. They had to prove it was technically a joke. And it was a huge legal headache for them. All because when they were writing 
the commercial, trying to work out what the joke should be, they didn't do the numbers. They didn't work out, is this a big enough number? Does it make sense in the context we're using it in? They just thought, this feels big. And I love the kind of the realization that the human brain is not intuitively good at mathematics. And that's why we have to learn it. And that's why it's difficult to learn, because you're teaching your brain new ways to think. And you should never trust your brain's natural instinct when it comes to maths, because, well, when it comes to math, sorry, because uh, brains just don't do math well out of the box. They're very, very good at learning it. And by learning it, we improve the way our brain works. But our first guess, our intuition is often wrong. And this was just such a great example that, you know, the stakes were medium high, given that all the legal implications, but just because someone didn't think through the mathematics, they didn't work out the numbers, they went there with their intuition, there were huge knock-on consequences, nothing dangerous, no one died. It's not like an aviation mistake or medicine, but it's such a great example of what happens when you don't do the mathematics. And I think that's a really great example of of two things, really, like, you know, one of the things that we often teach in, in math class is, you know, a linear relation, you know, had, you know, and that idea of extrapolating, yeah. uh, extrapolating and, and, you know, there's a nice, usually a nice, simple formula that you can just stick a number in and get the answer. Uh, but I think it also exemplifies the idea of, of how we, we just don't understand big numbers. And, and we, we don't know when to, we, we don't know enough to ask, is that a big number? Exactly. Yeah. And the human brain is just, we, we confuse like the jump from a million to a billion to a trillion. It's, right. it's, just, it's classic. We, all, we think they're roughly equally spaced, like a kind of logarithmic scale, but it's not. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's very interesting when you pull apart what the human brain's doing when it's just trying to do maths, you know, very naively. All right. So we look forward to hearing from you at our, our closing keynote at OME 2022, our virtual conference in May. Matt, thanks for talking to us today, and we will see you in May. My pleasure, David. I can't wait. So that was our closing keynote speaker, Matt Parker, who will be speaking to us all on Tuesday, May 10th at 6 p.m. And besides our featured and keynote speakers, we'll have over 120 breakout sessions and a virtual trade show with over 20 vendors. Full registration is now open and the link is in the description. We will have one more bonus episode featuring our featured and keynote speakers coming up in a few weeks, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, stay safe.